Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And here we are, Nikki. We're already starting Chapter 2 of Daniel. Like we know what we're doing. (laughs) Okay, so as I was reading through this, we are only going to go through verses 1 through 25 today, but there's several background things and interesting details in this passage that I just never noticed before. So I wanted to start by asking you, Nikki, what stood out to you in this passage that we're discussing today? Well, what always stands out to me when I read Daniel 2 is that prayer. Yes. But you mentioned discovering things kind of for the first time. And I had this aha moment while we were preparing, Mm -hmm. while we were discussing before we came in here to record. And as I was reading through the passage, I kept wondering, why didn't Daniel know that the king had ordered all of the wise men to be killed? Because last week we read that he had been taken into the king's personal service. Right. So he should have known. And so as we were looking through this, I read that first sentence in this section that says that it was the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar that this happened. Right. And I recalled last week we talked about Daniel being taken in after his three years of being trained and taught in all of these ways. So I realized we're actually moving back in time a little bit here with chapter two. And that was kind of fun to discover. Yeah, that helps a lot, huh? It does. And you know, look what happens when you pay attention to the words. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was one of the things for me. I had never noticed that before yesterday, that this is the second year and we're moving back. Yeah. You know, when it said in chapter 1, verse 17, as for the four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days, they'd been taken into his personal service, the king's personal service. Now I realize that chapter 2 is part of what gave the king the knowledge that Daniel could understand dreams and visions. Mm Mm-hmm. So we learn first about his crisis of faith with the king's food, and then this. That was really fun. I like it when those questions get answered because there's that internal cynic. I don't know if that's true for everybody or if it's just those of us who grew up in Adventism. or I don't know. But when it comes to trusting scripture, if there's ever a moment where things don't line up, I still can feel myself inside going, wait, what? That's exactly. What? And I'm always happy when I can press into it and because there's always an answer. Every there time is, there's an answer. There? Mm-hmm. there really are answers for these questions. Nikki, we were talking about this while we were preparing as well. Daniel was a teenager. Yeah. Now, we talked about that last week, but the fact is he goes through that whole food crisis. First of all, he's taken as a slave. He is likely made a eunuch. He refuses to eat the king's food, probably because it was a worship issue. And now this, and he's still a teenager. Yeah, he's still in school. He's still a student of the Babylonians. You know, when I think back to teaching ninth grade English, there may have been a few students that I could see having the internal fortitude to say, I'm going to trust God and do this, but not that many. This is a really amazing thing. And God is really with him. Mm-hmm. The other thing we talked about, and this is a detail that's not actually in the text of Daniel, but it was in that text we read last week where Isaiah 
had said that Hezekiah was told that some of his descendants would be taken by the king of Babylon and made eunuchs. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that this is partially a fulfillment of that, that Daniel had been perhaps of the tribe of Judah, or at least from the nobles, because he was in that first wave of slaves that was taken. Yeah, we know he was taken from the royal line. It's really neat to think of this being uh, the lineage of Hezekiah, that he still had this person in his family who was faithful. And Hezekiah had been the most faithful of the kings of Judah. So, why don't we just launch into this and read our verses? Because this is kind of a big picture thing. And like you said earlier, Nikki, it was such a good point. This is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. This is a descriptive passage of how God dealt with the man he had chosen to bear his witness of the Gentile nations of the world while he was enslaved in Babylon. So, would you read these first 25 verses of chapter 2 for us, please? Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So, they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time, in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, 
Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Okay, while we look at this, let's just recap what we've learned. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of the greatest empire on earth, it's growing in glory and splendor, and he is acquiring lands and nations and kingdoms under his power. He has a dream, and what happens in the morning? He's disturbed by it. He wants answers. So he calls his wise men and his magicians and whatnot. (laughs) So apparently one of the things his magicians and astrologers who are part of his retinue was apparently to interpret dreams. That appears to be one of the standard things that's part of their job description. So he calls in these, quote, soothsayers or astrologers or fortune tellers. And what does he do that's unusual? Well, he keeps the information, the details of the dream back from them. As an Adventist, I was never sure whether he remembered it or whether he didn't remember it. What do you think? No, he remembered it because it was a test. Yes. He was testing them. Yes, he was testing them. And how do we know he was testing them? He knew their character. He was calling them out. He knew that they were dishonest. He knew that they conspired together to tell the king essentially what he wanted to hear. Yeah. And he didn't want that. He was so disturbed by this dream. He wanted the truth. This wasn't about his ego. That's right. He wanted to know what was true. And I think it's interesting that he says so clearly in 8 and 9, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time. He says to his men, inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. And here he says it, you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream. You know, I'm trying to remember, but I'm pretty sure that the Bible story book indicated that the king couldn't remember the dream. Really? Yeah. Because I grew up thinking that he couldn't remember the dream and he couldn't tell it. And I'm almost certain that the way I learned it as a little Adventist girl and in the Bible stories with those pictures Mm -hmm. was that he couldn't remember the dream. Did you not learn that? No, I didn't. But again, I wasn't as consistently taught as you. We need to get our fact checkers on this. (laughs) Yes, we do. But either way. Yeah, the the text clearly says he's doing this, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The only way he can trust their interpretation is if they're able to tell him what he knows, his dream. That's the most important thing. And if they can't tell him the dream, then how could they even begin to trust their own interpretation? That would only have to be saying what they think he wanted to hear. And if we can, I'd like to go back to verse 1 for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar is this Gentile king 
God gave him Israel. Yeah. <laughs> he gave him things from his own temple, and he's a Gentile king, and now God's disturbing him with dreams. He was troubled by these dreams, and he couldn't sleep. He wanted these answers more than he wanted his ego stroked. It made me think of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God had this huge sovereign purpose in all of this. But to Nebuchadnezzar, he just had an upsetting dream. Yes, it reminds me actually of Job, where Job never really understood what went into the conversation that we are told in the book of Job between God and Satan where God allowed Satan to tempt Job and to trouble him because God knew that Job loved him and would not turn on him. He would not give up his faith in him. And Satan did everything he could do within the limits God placed on him. But Job never knew that story. He just knew he lost his children. He lost his animals. He lost his health, but he did not curse God. So this is an example for me of having kind of dual ideas about God in my head as an Adventist. I didn't believe that God would interrupt human history. I believed that he was letting it play out to put on display how wicked man is and how evil Satan is and how fair he is and that his law was supreme and we needed to obey it and be loyal to him. That was my picture of reality. But then I knew these stories that God gave King's dreams. You can't believe both of those things at the same time. God sovereignly did this. He did this all over the Bible, if you start paying attention. When he brought the plagues to Egypt, he told Moses what he was going to do, and he told him why. And one of his reasons was, of course, to get Israel out of Egypt, but another reason was so that they would know that he is the only true God. That's right. Not just Israel, Egypt, the unbelievers, that pagans, people who were not his. And as you read through the plagues, as they become more and more severe, you see him extend an offer for protection to the Egyptians. And he said, if you will obey what I say here, if you will trust me, then you too will be protected from these plagues. And he begins to invite the Gentiles into his covering and his protection. We see all over the Bible, he always had a plan for the Gentiles. Yes. He always did. And he did interrupt human history. He wrote human history. And you know, I think that's one of the biggest shifts in my whole way of thinking of reality I used to believe that we humans were ultimately in charge of our own fate. Mm -hmm. We even determined when Jesus would come back by our obedience and our persistence in being sanctified by keeping the law. Mm -hmm. This is a completely different God that we're reading about here. This is a sovereign God. And isn't it interesting that Adventism doesn't like a sovereign God? It interrupts the idea of free will. It interrupts the idea of... The whole physicalism of man with the inherited tendencies or propensities to sin, to frankly weak and mortal Jesus who comes to show us that that law is good and that we can keep it and thus be recommended as loving God. It's an inside-out reality. The sovereignty of God does not fit into the great controversy worldview. They'll use the term... But I think it was redefined or something. I heard it. I did too. But it was more like, you know, he's a king. It wasn't about his absolute and total control over all things. I heard a pastor this morning say, there isn't a rogue molecule in the universe. God is sovereign over all of it. And the idea of God being sovereign 
to the Adventist worldview is like sliding an ace card across the table to <laughs> Satan yes. for his case against the Lord. Mm-hmm. They don't see that God is sovereign and Satan is not a foe that we're helping to defeat or to grant winning to by our loyalty to Jesus or our unloyalty to him. Satan's not an equal player in this. No. So you have Ellen saying Daniel was able to interpret these dreams because he was eating vegetables and he was obeying God's law. And Daniel is the hero of the story. But if you just read the text, it's God. It's God who's the hero. Only God could take a teenaged boy, march him across the desert into Babylon, help that teenaged boy endure being castrated, help him endure learning all of the pagan stuff that he had to learn in those three years of training, help him stay loyal to God and not eat all the king's food, which apparently had been offered to pagan gods, help him stay loyal and not panic when the death sentence came down, when all of those astrologers couldn't interpret the dream. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing about this that I never really saw before, as clearly as I see it now, is the issue really wasn't the interpretation of the dream. That was necessary. That's what the king wanted. But the issue that put to the test all of his men was, can you tell me what the dream was? The real issue was knowing what was unknowable. And it became evident, even from the astrologers, that no human could do that. Yeah. Some God had to receive the credit for that. I love that. It became absolutely impossible for them to pridefully pull this off. And that, again, reminds me of Egypt and the magicians in Egypt. They copy all of those plagues until God turns all of the dust of Egypt into gnats. And they they try, they can't do it, and they tell Pharaoh, only God can do that. So, this is another instance of God revealing himself, and he reveals himself, as you said, to a pagan king through the means of his man, his teenaged man, and his three friends who prayed for him. And, you know, just by the way, I thought it was interesting, because we always remember those three friends as... Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. But Daniel here calls them by their Jewish names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call them by their pagan names. He calls them by the names that honor the one true God, the names that they were given by their parents. What happens then? Arioch comes, and he's looking for Daniel and his three friends so he can kill them. (laughs) Hello, I have a knock at my door. Come and be killed. Why? (laughs) Talk about what happens then. Well, you know, when we were preparing for this, Colleen, I told you if if I had been Daniel, my first response would have been to turn to my friends and say, Pat, (laughs) (laughs) we're leaving. (laughs) But he had discernment and discretion. That hit me. In the face of Essentially, the the man who would take his life is at his door, and he stands before him with discernment and discretion. That's kind of overwhelming if you spend time thinking about that. And he asked Arioch, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? It's not even, please don't kill me, no. or even, why are you going to kill me? It's, why is this so urgent? <laughs> 
it's very calm and rational. Yeah. That really struck me too. And you know, I have to think that there's only one way Daniel could have responded that way. It has to be a tradition in his own heart of trusting God. Yeah, I like how you put that. This is practiced faith. Yeah. It's not just spur of the moment. Oh, I'll trust God at this moment because it doesn't work that way. And his request was to go to the king. Isn't that something? To go to him. Not, hey, will you go talk to him about this for me? (laughs) No, that struck me too. He went to this furious king and asked for time. And he is a Jew, a slave, and a teenager who's in training to become Babylonized. And he asks to go to the king. Now, Nikki, one of the things that happened earlier in this chapter that was really striking to me occurs in verse 4. And when Nebuchadnezzar calls for all of his wise men to interpret the dream, they come to him and verse 4 says a really interesting thing. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. What's so fascinating about that is that in the original manuscript of Daniel, in all of those historical manuscripts, the first chapter and the first three verses of chapter two are all written in Hebrew. And right there at chapter four, the manuscript switches to Aramaic, right when it says they answered him in Aramaic. Now, what we're going to find is that this book of Daniel remains in Aramaic from chapter two, verse four, clear through the end of chapter seven. What's going to happen in this passage that's written in Aramaic, is that all of the stuff there is going to relate to Gentile nations. Even if the stories involve Daniel, even if they involve his three friends, it has to do with Gentile issues, pagan gods, and the way God intersects his own sovereign power with these Gentile nations. After chapter 7, the things that Daniel is going to learn from the Lord will have to do with how he is going to deal with Israel in the future. And I think that's really very interesting. It's one of the things that's made people say, you know, this couldn't have been written way back then. And it returns to Hebrew at that point. It does. You're right. After seven, the manuscript turns back to Hebrew and it talks about what will happen to the Jewish nation. It's like a little time capsule, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. Buried right here in the middle of the Bible. (laughs) In Aramaic, we learn that this is all going to go on, and we learn that Daniel is asking to speak to the king. Now, let's review. What was significant about Aramaic? What was the trade language? And most of those Chaldeans, many of them, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was in the process of invading the known world and taking slaves. So, many of those Chaldeans were from many different nations. So, The fact that they spoke to him in Aramaic is an indication that they were using the common trade language that everybody knew. So, this multinational group of soothsayers had a common language, and that's what we're going to be reading. And Daniel apparently knew it too. Mm -hmm. So, once Daniel asks to go and see the king, he apparently does get to go. In 16, it says he requested that some time would be given. Isn't that interesting? He Mm -hmm. doesn't say, please don't kill us. What does he ask for time to do? So that he can declare the interpretation to the king. And how does he go about preparing to do that? Before we even go there, what's fascinating to me, thinking about my former life, Uh the faithful, air quotes, thing to do would be to stay away from anything pagan and secular. Oh, that's a great point. 
Daniel's not afraid of that. He believes he can interpret the king's dream if God grants him to do so. So then he goes to his house where his friends are and encourages them to go to the Lord, to go to God and to pray and to request from him compassion concerning the mystery. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. It's it's also a wonderful example of a faithful believer going before the Lord in the face of crisis and not saying, hey, why are you letting this happen? Right. You took us out of Israel. You you took everything from us, and now you're going to let them kill. There's none of that. No. He completely trusts God, whatever the outcome. And it reminds me of what we'll read later in Daniel, where they said whether or not he saves us. That is amazing to me. Um, he asks for compassion concerning the mystery. And obviously, the outcome is still the same. You know, Lord, please intervene in this situation so we won't all die. But the way he writes it is not even that. He asks the Lord for compassion regarding the mystery. Now, once again, this word mystery is something I think we just need to define. It's a word that is used often in its Greek form in the New Testament. It doesn't mean like an Agatha Christie mystery, like whodunit, or, you know, how are we going to find the clues and figure this out? Mystery in this sense is the unknown thing that God does know, but he just hasn't revealed to his prophets yet or his apostles as it is in the New Testament. So it's something that God knows that he reveals to his people at his time. It's not something that's up to Daniel to figure out. It's something God knows and will reveal in his way to his man in his time. Should he choose? (laughs) Should he choose? (laughs) Yes. So that's what he asks his friends to pray for. And they pray with this kind of faith. I have heard people talk about other parts of the book of Daniel. I've recently heard a sermon by somebody who is an Adventist, but who's a very self-styled progressive Adventist. And they were talking about Daniel in the lion's den, and basically they rewrote the story so that they said, you know, Daniel did not escape the lion's den. He was thrown into the pit, and he had been perfect. He had done nothing wrong. And I am certain that when Daniel was thrown into the pit, he was wondering, God, where are you? Why am I in the lion's den? You know, when I read that story or this story in Daniel, that's not the story I'm seeing. No. Daniel did not doubt God. Daniel did not wonder why God was allowing any of this. Daniel has stayed faithful through being exiled, marched across the desert, castrated, refusing to eat the king's food, and now he's saying, Lord, grant us compassion Mm -hmm. regarding this mystery, which you know, and you are in charge. So, what happens? Well, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. He had a vision during the night. These four young men were in this together. He had his three friends who trusted God as much as he did, and they're praying. But God has selected Daniel to be the prophet. And we don't read anything here between the lines, but there's no explanation, no hint of jealousy or anything that Daniel is the one to whom it's revealed. They all pray, and God gives the answer to Daniel and they're all rescued. But there's no sense of hierarchy here or vying for God's attention or for wanting the power. I mean, there's just no hint of that here. 
And then when Daniel has received the vision before he's even told the king, what does he do? He prays and he praises God and he declares to God things that are true about him. I remember learning from Elizabeth Enrig, Pastor Gary's wife, about prayer. Mm-hmm. And it was also in the context of using a biblical hermeneutic to understand things. I think there were some various teachings that were circulating related to prayer that didn't fit patterns in scripture. And and she said, when you want to know something, you want to know how to do something according to God's will, you look for patterns in scripture. And she took us to Daniel chapter two, verses 20 and 23. And she used this as an example of how to pray to God. And it has definitely left its mark on my life during really hard times. Yeah. The most comforting prayers are the prayers that declare truth about him. Daniel does. He blesses the name of God, and then he begins to speak of his sovereignty. In verse 20, he says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Isn't that an amazing declaration from a teenager who's in his position? Mm -hmm. Wisdom and power belong to him. Now, Nikki, this is the passage. <laughs> it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Okay, talk to me about that particular verse. <laughs> okay. First time I read this as a Christian, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> because what I knew in Adventism about the Antichrist was that he would change times and seasons, that he was he was going to put himself in that position and that it had already begun by changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Yes. He had changed the times and the person of the Antichrist would then create laws that would really truly enforce this. So it was a scary thought, someone changing times. That was scary. In yeah. fact, I think that there was even some discussion about whether or not the daylight savings time had anything oh, to do that. with this. Absolutely, I've heard that. So when I heard this read from the front that God changes times, the God who never changes, yes. wait a minute. <laughs> It was startling. Uh-huh. You know, it's Daniel 7, where Adventists get that idea about the Antichrist. It's talking about this little horn and the fourth beast that comes up. And it says in verse 25 about this little horn, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So Adventists take that and run with it and say that the Antichrist is going to seek to change these unchangeable things that God has established, and it's all about the Sabbath. Which is so funny because they keep Sabbath according to Gentile time. Yes. It has nothing to do with the new moons or how it's connected to the new moons. It has nothing to do with the way the law of Moses sets it out. Yeah. Nothing. It is God who changes the times and the epochs. That's a big thing. Actually, it's it's fascinating because here Daniel is foreshadowing the time of the Gentiles. He is. And you know what? When I think about God changing times and epochs, I never understood the connectedness of history 
biblical history as I learned it after leaving Adventism. Let's just think for a minute about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You know, we have first we have the Garden of Eden, and then we have the fall, and then we have the flood. We don't know very much about that primordial world before the flood, which we read about in Genesis basically 8, 7 and 8, and then the ending with the covenant with Noah in chapter 9. But that's an epoch. That whole primordial world was an epoch of life about which we know very little. Mm -hmm. But God was still in charge. And it is God who ended that. And you know, as an Adventist, I did not understand, even though I knew God sent the flood, whatever that meant, I never thought of him killing all the people. Because I learned that Satan is the one who did all the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. that Satan is the one who kills people, that Satan's the one who causes disease. So I didn't really have a good way to explain what happened at the flood, but I didn't think of it as God judging the world and killing the people and starting over. And yet that's exactly what happened. And here's Daniel, who, as this teenager, knows the stories of Genesis, and he's basically saying God changes the times and the epochs. God put an end to that primordial world. God called Abraham in Genesis 12 and started a new line of people. God ultimately sent his son Jesus and brought an end to the old covenant and started a new one in Jesus's blood. It's God who changes times and epochs. And in Daniel's context, he was alive during a transition. He was a God-fearer. He knew what the prophets were saying. He knew this time was coming. And now Israel has been taken, and they've been transitioned into a Gentile kingdom. So he's a part of this transition, and he knows it's from God. It also reminds me of Paul's speech in Athens in Acts 17, where he says to these pagans on Mars Hill, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each of us. That's Acts 17, 24 to 27. So here's Daniel in Babylon acknowledging these facts about God. He's in charge of this. And then in 22, it is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. Well, what do we learn there? God's omniscient. He's omniscient, and, and He's the one who reveals what's true. And even if people think that they're doing dark deeds that no one can see, they're manipulating behind the scene, the man behind the curtain, <laughs> it's not a secret to God. And you know what else? It's allowed by God. And sometimes purposed and used by God. Exactly. The parallel truths that we live with that are coming to light because of these things Daniel is saying are that God is utterly sovereign, that nothing happens outside His will, and there is no plan B. And the parallel truth is that God asks each of us to make decisions and choices that have eternal consequences. And how these things fit together, we can only say both are true 
and we live in the knowledge that both are true, and we are responsible to God for our decisions. And Daniel was living that. He couldn't see the future unless God revealed it, but he also knew that his job was to honor God, even in a pagan environment where his life was threatened. That verse 22 reminds me of something I read in Isaiah 45 as we were preparing for this. God's speaking, and he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's a worldview change as a believer. That is a worldview change from Adventism. Absolutely, He knows what's in darkness. He's sovereign over everything. He used the sin of these Gentile nations to discipline Israel. Yes. He's not to blame for their sin, but he's sovereign over all of it. And that's why we don't have to fear. We can be as calm and rational and discerning as Daniel in this Babylonian culture that we live in because we know he's sovereign over all of it. You know, that's one of the things that I love about knowing the Lord. I was just reading something that somebody wrote recently that made me think of this again. When we're born again through trusting in the gospel, we know it. Mm -hmm. And the Lord confirms it to us. He teaches us to call him Father. He teaches us by his Spirit to let our spirit know that He is our Father. And He lets us know that He has us. As Jesus said, no one can snatch us out of His hand or the Father's hand. We know that we're secure. So, as you put it, in this Babylonian world that we live in, it's raging around us, but none of this is a surprise to God. Mm -mm. Nor is it out of His hands. We're safe. No matter what happens, we are safe. It can't destroy us. And so finally, Daniel prays, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. (laughs) What does Daniel understand here about his relationship with God? He knows it's not broken. That's right. You know, here his people have been scattered. And yet, even now, even in the face of the discipline that they're under, God gave him the answer. God's taking care of him. And it reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he says that Christ has become for us wisdom from God and redemption and reconciliation. God has always been the wisdom of his people. We don't generate the eternal wisdom that understands how to live in a broken world. It is God who has that wisdom, and it is God who gives that to us when we trust Him. And it's not that He just imparts it, like pouring it into our skulls so we have this special super knowledge or Gnostic information. He takes us into Himself through the blood of His Son and makes us part of Himself in some way. And on this side of the cross, we become part of the body of Christ because He indwells us, and He Himself is the wisdom of His people. And Daniel understood that even then. Daniel understood that there was no wisdom that he had because God supernaturally made his brain work better. (laughs) He didn't give him wisdom because he ate vegetarian. He didn't give him the knowledge of the dreams because he was faithful not to drink wine. 
It had nothing to do with his diet. This had to do entirely with him trusting God when the world was crashing. He calls it the compassion of God to give him this answer. That's a gift. Right. That's such a great point. So finally, after the prayer of thanks, he goes into Arioch the assassin and requests again to go to the king. Now, this is the second time. You know, days before, he went into the king to ask for a little bit of time, and now he asks him to go into the king again. He went to Arioch and said what? He said, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. He had information from God, and and he was not concerned about man at that point. No. 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 You know what? At any point, really. No fear of man. No. Only fear of God. And you don't fear a God whom you serve when you know that you're submitted to him and trusting him. But you know he is the God to be feared because he's the only one who can destroy and set up kings and nations and times and epochs. And if Daniel knew that, he knew that God had brought him into Babylon for this time. Mm-hmm. And so, in our last verse for today, what did Arioch do? <laughs> he acted quickly. <laughs> He brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to the king. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. I can't help but wonder, was Arioch pleased that he didn't have to kill Daniel? Or was he pleased that he got to tell the king he found him? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a bit of both. Maybe so. (laughs) Oh my, what an amazing story. To summarize what I have learned in this first part of chapter two, that was not clear to me as an Adventist, the king did know his dream. I I still keep coming back to that because I really did understand as an Adventist, and I don't know how I got this information that he'd forgotten and that he was asking all of his men to tell him because he'd forgotten. And I can remember even as a little kid thinking, well, wow, if nobody can remember it, the dream will be just lost. You know, it never dawned on me that the king might actually have remembered his dream and he was just testing his men. So that's a big thing for me. Mm. But the really amazing thing is that this Daniel, this teenaged Daniel, knew and trusted God at this level. And he understood his sovereignty. Nikki, I did not understand God's sovereignty at all until I was well into my 40s. It's why we had no peace in hardship. I never understood how the Christians could be so peaceful and trusting, even though they went through really painful things. I get it now. (laughs) Me too. And it's because we know that God does everything right on time. In the fullness of time, that's a very specific time frame. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He sent his son to take our sin into himself and to die a sufficient, appropriate sacrifice of atonement. He was the propitiation for our sins. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from death because his death was sufficient to pay for all of our sin. And it's important to me also to realize that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for the deeds I've done that are wrong. He died for my depravity, for my spiritual death, which is my inheritance from Adam. That's what he took to the cross. 
our inability to please him. He took our inability to honor him and fear him and trust him. He died for our depravity and all of the sins that we committed that flowed out of that. And when I realize that and trust him, I can live in freedom and forgiveness because Jesus paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. And if you haven't trusted him, we urge you to do that. He will be to you wisdom and power and redemption and reconciliation. He is sovereign. If you're following along with us, we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? How has it been for you going through Daniel? Join us next week as we continue through chapter two, and we get to hear Daniel's conversation with the king. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.